Well, friends, this morning I have a question for you. Have you ever had a moment where your image or your perception of somebody changed drastically? You thought you knew who they were and then something happened and then you're like, oh, I didn't really know who you were and you begin to see them for who they really are. If you have a moment like that, that you can think of, feel free to put it in the chat. We'd love to hear your stories. But I was thinking about this question. I was thinking about various moments that I've experienced with people in my life. And I actually thought about um, a moment that I experienced about five years ago. Some of you might know, and some of you might not know that before I entered into pastoral ministry that I uh, worked for an organization called Prison Fellowship. And so I was working inside prisons. I was uh, helping to bring different programs to um, men and women inside prisons and one uh, program in particular was called TUMI, the Urban Ministry Institute. And it was basically a seminary type program inside the prison walls. And so I uh, had two different prisons locally that I was um, running these programs at. One in, it's was San Quentin State Prison and another one was California State Prison in Solano. And uh, the Solano State Prison class I had been sort of joined in a little bit late. The program had started before I was there and I was going weekly and, you know, already in itself, the idea of uh, these men, you know, inside prison, going to sort of seminaries or urban seminary, <laughs> writing exegetical papers, preaching sermons, doing memory verses, having quizzes and final exams uh, was probably already like a bit of an odd thing to think about, something you might not imagine men in prison to be doing. But I remember um, in particular one moment where I was just, I just really got a glimpse of the, the weight of this all. And the men um, had been telling me that they were planning this big outreach event on the yard. They're going to have this sort of gospel variety showcase. And so they invited me to come. And actually, this was one of the few times that Michael actually got to go. He came with me as a guest um, to see this event that they were planning, this outreach event. And, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. <laughs> um, an outreach event inside the prison, you know, you just kind of like, okay, what's that going to be like? Um, and they were so excited. They had planned the whole thing. They've been telling me about all the amazing things that they were going to do and all the different events that they um, had done before. And, and so I show up and Michael comes with me. And... I, I just remember sitting there um, being blown away because first off, th there was just like incredible talent. <laughs> um, there was like, you know, gospel singers, there was a choir, there was um, dancers, there was um, uh, spoken word artists and rappers and, uh, and, and then some men gave testimonies and then one man actually gave his sermon. Um, and it was just this amazing, beautiful picture of the gifts, tremendous gifts, tremendous ministry, tremendous sort of power of these men and the power of their testimonies. Um, and I remember just sitting there for the kind of having seen these men week in and week out um, in a classroom setting, but then really getting to see them do ministry and really realizing at that moment, like, wow, these are not just criminals. They're not men who are um, just in prison. These are true, powerful ministers of the gospel. And I remember in that moment, really having my eyes open and shifted to see them in a new light. And I don't know about you, but these moments are really important and significant moments in our lives. When we have these sort of uh, moments of our eyes being opened, our vision being changed to see people, to see reality as it really is. 
And this is the, the, the story that we're looking at in the transfiguration narrative. Um, we've been in the lectionary and we've been in the gospel of Mark. And today the narrative of transfiguration comes from the gospel of Mark chapter nine. And we see this picture of um, the disciples, particularly Peter, James, and John, having a moment of maybe starting to see Jesus in a new light, seeing him in a new way, having him be transfigured before them and experiencing Jesus um, for who he truly is. And so um, this story is interesting because um, this transfiguration narrative actually happens on Mount Tabor. And this is a map of uh, Israel in the time of Jesus. And Mount Tabor is in the reason, uh, region of Galilee. And um, some of you might know that Jesus kind of grew up in Nazareth of Galilee. And this is actually important. I think that it didn't really happen in Jerusalem, in the city, uh, sort of uh, the, the center of power. It happened on the outskirts, happened on the margins, happened in this sort of liminal place. Um, Nazareth of Galilee was this area that had um, sort of been conquered multiple times by various um, communities. They were sort of a, a poor peasant um, community. And so Jesus coming from Galilee already in itself meant that, you know, people probably saw him as sort of this kind of poor peasant guy. They didn't see him as someone super powerful or influential in any sort of way. And so, and, and even this transfiguration happening on Mount Tabor in that area was a reinforcement of the fact that Jesus came from Galilee, that Jesus came from the margins. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him, and they go up to the mountaintop. If you think about the mountaintop, it's sort of this liminal place in between heaven and in between earth, right? Um, it's a place away from distractions, away from sort of the, the realities of empire and earthly um, sort of sort of earthly realities. And on this mountaintop, sort of in the clouds, in this place between heaven and earth when this transfiguration happens. Um, and we, we know that in the transformation um, of Jesus in this situation, that his clothes become extremely bright white, amazingly white, brighter than if they had been bleached. Uh, and, and for Jewish readers, they would know that this, this kind of signals Moses, right? Uh, Moses also had this mountaintop experience where he went up to Sinai and came back and his face was shining so bright that it was blinding. Um, and so, and so Jesus sort of glowing in white was this um, throwback to, to Moses and, and um, this amazingly bright light is sort of blinding and terrifying the disciples. And then we know that Moses and Elijah appear, um, which is significant because Moses is a representative of the law, right? Moses is the one who received the law um, from God after the Exodus on Mount Sinai. And Elijah represents the prophets, um, kind of the one of the um, key prophets of Israel. And so uh, in the scene, you have um, Moses who represents the law, Elijah who represents the prophets, and Jesus who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And we see that, you know, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are there, and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they are terrified by this. Um, they're amazed and they're terrified, right? They're, they're looking at what's happening. And um, at first it says, you know, um, uh, well, I, so, so <laughs> they see what's happening in Peter, <laughs> in, in typical Peter fashion and sort of like his brash, reactive, doesn't really think about what he's doing. Um, he, he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. <laughs> Let's make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
And I know there's like a lot of interpretations of what that means. What is he thinking? What is he saying? There's a way that he wants to capture what's happening. He wants to commemorate what's happening. Um, the shrine, that word um, is actually Sukkot, which is uh, the same word for tabernacle or even booth. Um, that the people of Israel and the festival of booths um, kind of celebrated and commemorated the exodus. And, and these booths or shrines or tabernacles were um, a symbol of commemoration. And there's a way that Peter wants to kind of capture this moment, commemorate it, and, and stay there, stay in that moment. <laughs> and, and in a way, I think he also doesn't really understand what's happening, right? Um, and, and yet, you know, in God's grace, I think there's, there's a way that, you know, maybe Peter, in sort of missing it, the, the presence of God shows up. Um, a cloud overshadows them. A voice speaks from the cloud. This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then all of a sudden, it's just gone. And only Jesus remains. And if we think about this picture of transfiguration, I think there's, there's a lot of things we could talk about. But one of the things that really stands out to me is that um, you have this uh, moment in Mark 9 that actually is sort of a parallel of Mark 1, where Jesus is baptized. Jesus' baptism, there's a lot of similar things where the clouds are overshadowing, the voice speaks from the heavens, and that voice assures Jesus that Jesus is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. There's this declaration for Jesus as he's about to go into the wilderness and be tempted that he is the beloved. And again, in this moment, there's this revelation, the cloud that comes from the heavens, the voice that speaks out and says, you are my son whom I dearly love. Oh, this is my son whom I dearly love. Listen to him. And in this moment, the revelation is not for Jesus. Jesus knows that he is the beloved. In this moment, the revelation is for the disciples to know who Jesus is, to see clearly who Jesus is. Jesus is not just their friend, not just their teacher, not just this prophet in their midst, not just the rabbi. They, the disciples have seen him do miracles. They know he has power and authority, but they might not know to the full extent who he is. And in this moment, the voice from the heaven declares, he truly is the son of God, fully human, fully divine. And his divinity is not um, in sort of just his power and authority, his divinity is in his belovedness. And it's because Jesus is loved that we are called to listen to him. It's because Jesus is loved that we know that he is divine. It's in being loved that Jesus' divinity is revealed to us. And I, I've been really struck by this. I've been thinking about this because I've read this transfiguration story before and somehow this time around, it really stood out to me that Jesus is not just the one who loves us. You know, we often think of Jesus, oh, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves us, right? But Jesus is not just the one who loves us. Jesus is first the one who is loved, who is beloved. And I think in our world, uh, in all that's going on in our society, this is a really important truth. To know that Jesus is the one who is loved. Jesus is the loved one, right? And we've, we've heard about um, and seen sort of the, the influence of hate in our society in this past week. 
Some of us have been watching the impeachment trials and we've seen these videos coming out of what really happened on January 6th. And all you can really see when you see these videos is just the hate, the anger, the violence, the brutality, right? This desire for domination, uh, all this hate, hateful energy that came out on January 6th. And we know for many of us um, that in this last week, there's also been a lot of attention on, on these incidents of hate um, that have been happening against the Asian American community. We know this is not new, that this is a historically um, rooted reality that anti-Asian um, hatred, xenophobia, um, racism is not new, that the sort of uh, yellow peril sort of narrative is not new and yet, um, in this week, I think with things that have been going on, uh, there's been a heightened attention to it. And, and let me just say, I think that in some ways that, you know, these incidents of violence against Asian elders, you know, maybe you're wondering like, is this explicitly like a racist thing? Is it just that the Asian elders are vulnerable, that it's Lunar New Year, that they, um, they're often going to the bank or carrying lots of money? And I think, you know, I think there's both, both and, right? Like we know that um, there's, you know, some reality of this, these incidents happening and, and uh, maybe it's not directly racially motivated. And then there are incidents that are, right? That there's been um, over 3000 incidents of hate that have been uh, just documented by, just the documented ones uh, by Asian Americans since the COVID-19 um, pandemic hit. And we know that there have been incidents, um, just like even in, in San Francisco on, on February 4th, where um, a Thai elder, Vishar Ratanapakti, um, was killed and kind of knocked to the ground um, and killed by, by that incident. And we've seen how this string of violence um, has, has led to kind of this multiplication of hate and violence, right? Uh, I think there's been some acts of sort of solidarity and calling for support and calling for love, but there's also been ways that this has led and fueled divisions and hatred and multiplied anger and frustration, particularly in the Asian American and the black community, um, because some of the perpetrators of these incidents were um, black folks. And I was walking around my neighborhood this morning, just or not this morning, this past week, um, thinking about all that was going on with my heart heavy and just feeling the weight of all that the, this hate and all the violence. And, and I was, you know, wrestling with this and wrestling with this passage of transfiguration, really asking God, like, what does it take for somebody to knock an 84 year old man to the ground to the point that it would kill him? What would it take for someone to, you know, slash the face of a 61-year-old Filipino man for him to get, need a hundred stitches and just leave him bleeding? Um, what kind of person would assault a 64-year-old Vietnamese grandma in broad daylight? What does it take for someone to do these kinds of hateful things? And I was just thinking about like, who does this? What, what pushes someone to this point? And I really um, felt like I heard God say, you know, um, the kind of person who does these things, the kind of person who's lacking love, someone who does not know that they are dearly loved ones. And I was reminded of this quote from Pope Benedict that said, you know, the greatest poverty in the world is the lack of love. The greatest poverty in the world is the lack of love. 
And so I think it's extremely profound in this moment, on this day, on Valentine's Day and Transfiguration Sunday. The, the fact that Transfiguration Sunday fell on Valentine's Day for me really struck me. That the, one of the most sacred heaven breaking into earth moments of revelation around Jesus's identity is that he is loved that Jesus is dearly loved, that he is the loved one. And it's powerful because, not just because what it reveals about Jesus, but what it also reveals about us and the possibility of a new world that comes through Jesus, the one who is loved, through the force of love. You know, we as Christians, we believe that our life comes from the life of Christ. We are baptized with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We are resurrected with Christ. And so we must also believe that we are transfigured with Christ. And if we believe that the transfiguration of Jesus is rooted in his identity as the beloved, then we too must know that we also can be transfigured because we also are beloved. We are not merely human beings defined by our labels, our social categories, our neighborhoods of origin, our gender, our sexuality, our bank accounts. We are children of God who are dearly loved. We bear the image of God. And this love, it changes everything. It changes our vision of ourselves and others. It changes who we believe God to be and who God is among. It changes who we believe God's family to be and who we choose as our family. And so I want to ask us this morning, can we imagine what kind of world we would see if every single human being on this earth lived in that kind of love that Jesus knew that he had in the love of the, of the Trinity? that if we knew that we were dearly loved, if we knew that we could be secure in our belovedness, what would change about our world? How would our world be different? Maybe we would see a world in which people actually live sacrificially and generos generously. So poverty does not exist. Maybe we would see a world where humans cared about the suffering of others. So nobody feels invisible where people enjoyed uh, the joys of others and grieve the pain of others so that nobody feels alone, where people are healed and secure so that nobody perpetuates violence and trauma, a world that considers all of God's children as our very own family so that divisions and wars would cease, a world where power can be shared in love. We give ourselves in love so that oppression can cease. And as for me as an Asian American this week with all that was going on and the suffering and pain of our community that I felt you know, in many ways uh, was being gaslit and minimized. <laughs> I think there was ways that um, the Asian American community can experience a sort of invisibility around our pain sometimes. So, well, your, your experience, your suffering is not as bad as this community suffering. And so it's minimized or, well, you guys also you know, show, um, you know, racism and perpetuate racism in some ways. And so maybe you don't deserve solidarity, right? There's these sort of narratives going around. And for me this week, as I was wrestling, what does it mean for me to know that I am loved? I was thinking about the same word um, that was given to the disciples that, you know, because Jesus is loved, the voice from the heavens is listen to him. And for me this week, I was thinking about what does it mean for people to be loved in such a way that they actually believe that they're worthy to be listened to, that their pain is valid, 
that their stories are worth hearing, that their experience is worth affirming and acknowledging, and that I am worth listening to. Friends, through love, I believe our vision of the world and of one another has the power to be transfigured and oh, how I long for that love. I hope we are longing for that love, the love that can change everything. For I believe that in the same way that it was love that sort of transformed the vision of Jesus for these disciples, of Jesus as sort of this poor brown-skinned Palestinian Jew from Nazareth of Galilee to know that he is divine, beloved son of God worth listening to, that we would see that same transfiguration in our society, that it would be the force of love that transforms our vision of Asian elders from being weak and easy targets, perpetual foreigners, a virus, a plague, and that we begin to see that they are dearly loved children of God, worthy of life, worthy of honor and protection and care that it would also be that same force of love that transforms our vision of black youth who perpetrate these acts of violence, um, that we would not see them as violent criminals and thugs and deserving of harm and punishment and retribution, but that we would also see that they are dearly loved children of God in need of healing and who can be part of healing the harms they have caused. That it would be the force of love that transforms our vision of those struggling with mental health issues that we would not see them as undeserving of a relationship or beyond help, but we would see them too as dearly loved children of God who have a place in our world. It would be the force of love that transforms our vision of transgender siblings who are seen as unclean and confused and outcasts into being dearly loved children of God, fully affirmed and included in God's family. That we would see the force of love that goes to the margins, touches the untouchable, loves the unlovable, listens to those who've been silenced and calls them dearly loved children of God. Second Corinthians 3, 18 says, as we behold Christ as the one who is loved, we too are transfigured into the image of Christ as one who is loved. And it's in that place of love that we find the pathway to resurrected life and collective liberation. Amen. Friends, we, uh, in this last sort of bit, I just want to just share a quote. Um, we are in Black History Month. And as we think about this sort of transfiguring force of love, the ways that we can live in the reality of being the loved ones, dearly loved ones of God of God. I want to read this quote from Bell Hooks from her essay, Love as the Practice of Freedom. I believe this pr prevents a, uh, uh, provides a, a vision for us of what love can really do. Um, and she says, without an ethic of love shaping the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced in one way or the other into continued allegiance to systems of domination. Many of us are motivated to move against domination solely when we feel our self-interest directly threatened. Often then, the longing is not for a collective transformation of society, but an end, uh, or an end to dom politics of dominations, but rather simply for an end to what we feel is hurting us. This is why we desperately need an ethic of love to intervene in our self-centered longing for change. 
The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. And that action is a testimony of love as a practice of freedom. Love is the practice of freedom. And friends, on this Transfiguration Sunday, my prayer for us is that we would be people who behold the revelation of Christ, the divine Son of God, who is dearly loved and invites us to live as dearly loved. That as we understand our own belovedness and treat others as dearly beloved as well, that we would begin to see a new world a world free from oppression and domination and violence, and a world marked by freedom and solidarity and community. A world where resurrection is possible and liberation is for all. May we continue to experience the power of Christ's transfiguring love in our lives so that we could share it with the world that so desperately needs it. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite us now, if you are